there's this beautiful poem that's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remain in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running, and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside down kingdom. Now Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus, begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right, but for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. And so how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies.
This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. morning. Isn't that good? I mean, we should just call it. Like, that was enough, right? Um, I, uh, we're, we're in the second week of three talks right now where we are just unpacking some basic theology that informs everything that we do and what we are primarily about here at Vancouver Vineyard Church. And so last week we talked about the big, like, meta narrative, the big picture of what the Bible has to say about heaven and earth and what our role is in it. And today we want to spend some time sort of drilling down on the gospel. What is the message of good news that Jesus came proclaiming? And how is this gospel still good news for our world today? Um, the third sermon next week will be uh, one more Bible Project video. So come back for that, if nothing else. Um, now, when I say the word gospel, no doubt there are dozens of different interpretations and understandings of what that means, even just within the four walls of this room today. Um, each of us has an assumption about what this word gospel means, and most of us probably have some pretty similar ideas about the gospel, but no doubt there are also many differences. And I believe that it's crucial that we get our understanding of what the gospel is correct, because as D Dallas Willard wrote, what you present as the gospel will determine what you present as discipleship. Meaning this, that what you believe about the gospel will determine how you live out the truth of the gospel. And one of the central distinctives of um, our church, the Vancouver Vineyard Church, and the rest of our movement, the Vineyard, is what we call kingdom theology, which is based uh, mostly upon the work of a guy named George Eldon Ladd, um, and then many scholars following him have expanded upon it. Our entire theological framework is built around what Jesus referred to as the kingdom of God. Now, last week when we were talking about heaven and earth, you may have noticed that we, we jumped from Genesis chapter 3, um, you know, what is called the fall, or when sin vandalized God's good creation, we just jumped all the way to the New Testament, to Jesus, and we skipped about two-thirds of the Bible. Did anybody notice that and have a problem with that? <laughs> Probably not, right? Because for many of us, in our assumed theology, we struggle to find sort of the relevance, the importance of the majority of the Bible that took place before Jesus, we can tend to think of Israel's story as nothing more than God's failed attempt to sort out the mess that was made in Genesis chapter 3. Like he sees that sin entered the world, so he goes and he finds a guy named Abraham, tells him that he's going to work through his family 
to fix everything that's gone wrong in the world, and then we find out that the family is also just as messed up as everyone else and keeps screwing up God's plan. And so finally, God gets tired of it. He rolls up his own sleeves. He sends his son to go die on the cross for our sins, and in so doing, also makes it so we don't have to pay attention to those silly rules that the Abraham family had to follow. That's more or less an assumed theology for the majority of the Christian church. We'll just have grace. We get a clean slate. Jesus took care of it all. But the thing that we have to keep in mind is that Jesus did not redeem the entire world in a vacuum. Jesus came as the culmination of the story of God's redemptive work through the people of Israel, through a specific people in a specific place throughout most of ancient history. And if you look at the very beginning of the first of four biographies that we read in the Bible, what we call the Gospels, the first chapter of Math, the Gospel of Matthew actually has this really long, drawn-out um, uh, lineage. You know, it's the page that most of us skip on our way to the Christmas story. And this strange first page is actually intended to point us back to the previous two-thirds to say, no, 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 you have to remember, everything that's about to take place is rooted in something that came before it. Jesus didn't just come to live a sinless life and die on a cross randomly to cleanse us of our sins. Jesus came with the purpose of inaugurating a kingdom that God's people had been longing and looking for for hundreds and hundreds of years. So you guys want to get into some Old Testament a little bit? Okay, we're going to do a crash course of two-thirds of the Bible in about eight minutes, okay? So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12 if you have them. After the fall in Genesis chapter 3, there are eight chapters filled with humans descending deeper and deeper into their fallenness. Everything that happened in the garden that began with eating the wrong kind of fruit gets worse and worse and worse for eight chapters. And, um, and God is again and again trying to deal with the mess that humans make. And he does so at one point by sending this huge flood that was really problematic. Then he, he ended up scattering people into various nations across the earth with different languages. And then in Genesis 12, we see that God shows up to a, a guy named Abram who lived in Iraq. And this is what we read in, in the first verse. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God chooses this man named Abram, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. But it's not just because I think that you're a great guy. I have a greater purpose in this. I want to make you into more than a nation. I want to make you into a kingdom. And through this kingdom, all of the peoples of the earth will be blessed. That through you, your lineage, through your people, through this kingdom I will establish through you, I'm going to undo all 
all of the junk that happened way back in the garden, and I want to start setting things to right. I want to bring humanity back into the purpose for which I've called you all to live, and I'm going to give you some distinctives. Just follow me, trust in me, be faithful to me, and I will enable you to pick up the pieces of your original purpose back in Genesis 1 to look after my world, to make this world fruitful, and to spread the shalom, to clean up the vandalism across the earth. And this begins the story of the Abrahamic people. So God changed Abram's name to Abraham, gave him a son named Isaac, who then had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 patriarchs of Israel. And then we read towards the end of the first book of the Bible in Genesis that one of these 12 sons, Joseph, he became the first, one of the very first fulfillments of God's promise to Abraham. That through great difficulty, many trials, Joseph found himself alone in Egypt in prison. And because of his faithfulness to God, he was used to bless all of the surrounding nations during a time of great famine. God raised him up from the pit, from the depths. He was in obscurity. He had no power. He had no worth, nothing. And God raised him up, gave him a seat of prominence, and said, I'm going to use you to take care of all of the people around us. And all of the, the nations were blessed because of jo Joseph's faithfulness. But sadly, uh, as Joseph was in, in Egypt and all of his family came and joined him, very soon the Israelites all found themselves enslaved in Egypt. And for 400 years they were being oppressed and they were crying out to God to be delivered from the yoke of this false kingdom of Egypt. They longed for him to fulfill the promise that God had made to their father Abraham. So God raises up a guy named Moses. Moses. <laughs> who delivered God's people from their oppression in Egypt by the power of God. And God himself, he leads his people out into the wilderness, out from under the yoke of their captivity. And while they are out in the wilderness, he gives them a law and he gives them covenants and he declares over them all the things that they needed to do to be distinct from the rest of the nations so that they could be, quote, a people for his own possession. God was forming the people of Israel back into a nation, into a kingdom, and he himself was going to be their king. And if they would remain faithful to him and trust him, he would make them, again, this kingdom of blessing for all the nations of the world. But did Israel remain faithful to God? Sometimes, right? Occasionally. And, but as they spread out into the land that God had promised them, again and again, they did so according to their own strength and for their own benefit. And they ended up conquering and ruling in the same manner as all of the rest of the nations around them. So rather than being a blessing for all nations that points everyone to the supremacy of Yahweh as God, instead they were just like the nations around them, which led them to actually go to God at one point and demand that he would give them a king just like the other nations. They said, we're tired of having God who's invisible as our king. We want, like, a person who can really rule us just like all of the other nations. And God warned them, don't do this. You're not going to like it. Taxes are going to go up. You're going to have to serve in the military. You're not going to like it, trust me. But they didn't want to listen to him, and they demanded that he gives them a king. And so he acquiesced, and he gives them a king, and this is a guy named Saul. Now, on paper, Saul was like a great king. Right? He was tall, which is the main thing you're looking for. <laughs> um, he was handsome. 
he was like a person who would command respect in the rest of the other nations. And for a while, Saul actually did a pretty good job. He was pretty humble before God. He had a prophet who was helping, you know, bring correction and leadership to him. He did an okay job. But slowly, the, the way that power just began to creep into his heart, he, he started to act like other kings. And he began to trust in himself, which ended up ironically leading to deep insecurity and fear that manifests itself through ruthlessness. And eventually, God stripped the kingdom from him and from his entire family line. And so, God raises up another king, a young man, and his name is... David, good job, we're, we're cruising. And David was known to be a man after God's own heart. And the rest of the Bible uses David as a type to foreshadow a future king who is to come, who is going to do what no earthly king was actually able to do. That he, he was foreshadowing the Messiah who would rule Israel with justice and righteousness. And through the reign of this messianic king, Israel would lead the nations finally and fully into blessing, into the shalom that God intended from the beginning. Here's what we read in Isaiah 9. This is the verse we go to at Christmas time. Merry Christmas. It's Christmas now, right? Halloween's over? All right. I, was, I thought I would get a boo. Um, <laughs> All right, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That is a profound, a profound prophecy. Like imagine the implications of it if it were to come true. There would come a king who would rule on David's throne and he would uphold the throne with what? Justice. And righteousness. Following King David, there came a series of kings who mostly did the opposite. There would be the occasional king who got it right, you know, who would follow Yahweh, who would lead Israel back to God. But mostly they ruled just like all of the other nations. And eventually God judged Israel because of not only the corruption of their government, but because of the corruption of their spirituality. There was idolatry and demonic worship that was literally happening in the temple of God. And so he judges Israel and he sends them into exile in a place called Babylon. And, um, and this became a crisis for God's people. You, it was, you saw at the beginning of the video that we just watched earlier, because they were thinking, we, we thought we were supposed to be the head and not the tail. We thought that we were supposed to be the nation that leads all of the other nations. God, what about your promises? How are you going to fulfill it when everything has been destroyed? And in exile, the prophets of Israel keep pointing forward to this hope that we read about in Isaiah chapter 9 of this messianic kingdom that God had not forgotten his promises, but that he would fulfill them, promising them. They're in captivity. They are in Babylon. They are in exile. They have no land, no power, no temple, no nothing. And then in that place, in Daniel 9, the prophet Daniel speaks a word from the Lord. God 
God speaks a promise to his people. And in this promise, he gives a timeline of fulfillment for this messianic kingdom. He actually tells them how many years it's going to be before the king finally shows up. And this prophecy is fulfilled. This kingdom is released. And it's going to be awesome. And they're like, sweet, how long? And he said, it will be 70 weeks of years, which means 70 times 7 years, 490 years, a half a millennia. Now, that sounds devastatingly depressing if you are in captivity, but it actually points to something way better. It points to something that is amazing in the Jewish world because this, this, this number seven, it, it carries so much significance for God's people. And so in the Jewish calendar, every seventh day is what? The Sabbath, a day of rest and worship and celebration, a festival to God. And then um, every seventh year is a sabbatical year where you let the ground lay fallow, where everything gets a rest and to enjoy the goodness of God. And then every seventh sabbatical year, so every 49 years, was called what? Jubilee. And in Jubilee, every slave was set free and all debt was canceled. And any land that had been sold or bought during those 49 years would be restored to the original family that had owned it. It was a reset. It was restoring everything that had gone wrong and making it all right. So when Daniel prophesied 70 times 7 years, he was pointing to a future that was actually going to be the jubilee of jubilees. In half a millennia, there would occur the greatest redemption of all time where the whole world would be set free from its bondage and all things would be restored. The messianic kingdom would finally come and that, my friends, is hope. And if somebody came to us, I think today, in 2021 and said, in 490 years, you're not going to see it in your lifetime, but guess what? God is going to make everything new. I think that all of us would have a heart that leaps a little bit and says, awesome. Let's go. He's coming. He's going to fulfill his promise. And so for nearly 500 years, Israel struggled under the yoke of oppressive rulers from the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks, finally to this like iron-fisted, brutal empire of Rome. And as the birth of Jesus was drawing near, Israel was on the lookout for this messianic king. This was not something that surprised anyone. Everybody was hopeful and longing for the appearing of this king who is finally going to show up on this 70th seven. And so when you look at the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, what we just referenced, this weird long list of names that I would read to you, except I can't pronounce half of them, we see, we see from this lineage from Abraham to Jesus, and then look at verse 17 of Matthew 1. There, thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile uh, to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Simple, throwaway little verse, right? But what we see is that from Abraham to Jesus, there were six sevens of generations, and that Jesus is himself the beginning of the seventh seven. Jesus is the embodiment of Jubilee. He is the one who would redeem Israel from all of its bondage, and he is the one who would usher in this long-awaited kingdom that would establish righteousness and justice in all the earth. 
And so when Jesus comes on the scene at the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, this is what we read. It says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming good news, this euangelion, the good news of God. The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. What was the gospel that Jesus came preaching? How did Jesus go around preaching the gospel? He says this. He says, the time has come, guys. It's finally here. Everything is being made new. The kingdom of God is appearing. This thing that we have been waiting for and longing for, not just since Daniel and not even since Abraham, but from the moment that everything went wrong in that garden long, long, long ago, in us, and every single one of us, in, within our DNA is embedded this heart's cry that says, please, something's got to change. There's got to be hope. It, tell me, is there going to be good news? And he says, it's here. Adjust your life to God's kingdom that has finally arrived. And so a summary statement of Jesus' whole ministry is right here, found in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news that the kingdom was here and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus' entire ministry was centered on this idea of the kingdom of God, which Dallas Willard calls, uh, refers to as the range of God's effective will. That the kingdom of God is the space where everything that God wants done happens. And so in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus calls us to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And so what is this kingdom like? What does this hoped-for kingdom look like? It's what Jesus describes in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, or again in Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain. It's a kingdom that is ruled by God. It's an upside-down kingdom where the way of power is subverted by sacrificial love. It's one where authority comes through humility and servanthood. It's one of nonviolence and love for your enemy. John Wimber, one of the founders of the Vineyard Movement, described Jesus' life and ministry like this. He says, Jesus was full of the Spirit without measure and empowered for a purpose, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. <clears throat> he corrected wrong theology and eschatological vision of the Pharisees. He taught us the way of God's kingdom was not one of adherence to the law, but rather one of the transformation of heart by the grace of God. And then Jesus demonstrated the kingdom. He healed sick people. He set, pre, set free those who were demonized. He fed the hungry. He clothed the poor. He restored the blind. He welcomed the outcast and the refugee and the foreigner. Jesus confronted the rich and those who oppressed the poor. He cleansed the temple in righteous anger. And why did he cleanse the temple? What was the verse that he cited when he cleansed the temple? He said, this house, the people of Israel... Those who worship Yahweh are meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. The whole purpose of this thing is to bless all people, but you have inverted it so that to be a place of self-blessing and self-appreciation and self-aggrandizement. He broke social and political mores by hanging out with the wrong kind of people, prostitutes and tax collectors, sitting with a Samaritan woman with a checkered past and anyone who was the ethnic other 
Jesus did everything in a way that radically reoriented what we assumed power and authority ought to look like. He preached about his kingdom through parables, clarifying all of the misunderstandings of what God was up to. He revealed the Father, giving us a whole new paradigm for how it is that we relate to God, no longer as some distant deity who gives us rules, but rather as a loving Father who calls you by his own name and loves you deeply, who leads with compassion and forgiveness and tenderness towards all all of his people, especially those who suffer and are in pain and who are marginalized. And this was extravagant news. And so the whole while, while Jesus is going through all of the land and he's declaring this good news of a kingdom that is led by God with a king who is himself God. And he was healing everybody around him. He was immensely popular. Crowds were flocking to him, bringing all of those who were sick and oppressed by the devil, and he was healing and setting them free. But his popularity began to dwindle as it began to dawn on some people, particularly those who were powerful, that this good news that Jesus keeps preaching, you know, that's for the poor and for those who are without power, this actually kind of threatens me because I'm not poor and I have power. For them, this kingdom that Jesus was declaring felt like it was at odds with what they perceived to be their best interest. And isn't that the case that we see over and over again today? This kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, it is profoundly beautiful. And it, it, feels like, it feels like the most inviting thing in the world until it disrupts the power systems in our own hearts and in our own world. And there are two primary kingdom paradigms that I think we need to understand in order to understand why this gospel is still good news. The first paradigm is that, is that of the upside-down kingdom, that the kingdom of God inverts all of our human categories for how power and privilege works, that Jesus upends our expectations for who is in and who is out in his kingdom, who is powerful and who is weak, who is truly happy and blessed and who is cursed. And Jesus actually confronts people to their face. He looks at religious elites and tells them that they are completely missing God's kingdom, all the while cozying up to tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and the poor and those who are suffering and saying, the kingdom, this is where the kingdom is right here. And according to Jesus, this upside-down kingdom, the way to experience true and abundant life happens by laying down your life and embracing the way of the cross. The way to receive and experience true riches is by giving away your worldly wealth and possessing nothing. The way of power and authority is the way of the servant who washes feet. The way to overcome your enemy and those who oppress you is actually by loving them, turning the other cheek. And so on, on one hand, the upside-downness of Jesus' kingdom is beautiful and compelling. It is poetry in a world of ugliness and contention. But what about when it's your time to follow the way of the kingdom into suffering and pain and death? Is it beautiful when it bids you to come and die to yourself. And the ultimate expression of this upside-down kingdom happens at the cross. 
How does Jesus exercise his authority and power as the long-awaited king? By giving up his own power on the cross. Jesus allows all of the other powers that are at odds with God's kingdom, the powers of this world, of Satan, of sin, of death, and of hell, to crush his mortal body, and in that moment crushes the hope of this long-awaited kingdom. All of the evil of this world exhausts its power on him. All of the evil that resides within our own hearts, within our own intentions, the things that we hate but we can't seem to get rid of, they were all poured out in that moment on Jesus on the cross. And it was in his laying down his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin that he overcomes all of the evil that sought to destroy him. You see, this upside-down kingdom... The inversion in Jesus, ultimate victory comes in the form of surrender. The darkness that tried to extinguish the light of the world is itself extinguished by Christ's sacrificial love. And it's at the cross that this upside-down kingdom we hear is inaugurated. Just as they said in that video, he is given a crown of thorns, but little do they know that they are truly crowning him king of all. Which brings us to the second paradigm, which is the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is now, but it's also not yet. Because as good as this news sounds to us as we preach it right here, and you're like, yes, victory at the cross, that sounds amazing, he overcomes all of it. And then we look around at our lives and we're like, but where's the victory, man? Like, it doesn't feel like the victory is here yet. You see, the kingdom of God had begun in the person of Jesus, but there is a gap between the initiation of God's kingdom and the fulfillment of it. This is what we call in theology terms, enacted, inaugurated eschatology. Nerd alert. Enacted, meaning it was demonstrated by Jesus and is continuing to manifest in the works of his followers. Inaugurated meaning it officially begun in the person of Jesus and was confirmed in his death and resurrection. And eschatology, meaning sort of the study of what happens at the very end, meaning the promise of the age to come, the long-awaited fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 has come and is overlapping with the current reality of the age we live in today. And so although the kingdom of God is now at hand, we are still waiting for it to be fulfilled. It is now and it is not yet. It is initiated, but it is not yet consummated or realized. And we exist in a, in a tense middle space. Our discipleship, our following Jesus, giving him everything that we have in our lives, it actually uh, it, it exists in light of the age to come while facing the realities of our present day, which is a weird space to live in, Right? One of the best examples, I think, kind of a, a parable of how this reality works um, is what we now celebrate in our newest federal holiday, Juneteenth. It's pretty cool that we got that a federal holiday, isn't it? All right. <laughs> so here, here's Juneteenth. On January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And in doing this, what he was doing, he was sending out a proclamation that declared that all persons that are held as slaves within the United States are henceforth set free. And this was after years of civil war. 
And in issuing this proclamation, it, it changed the entire tide of the Civil War. After the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, every advance of Union soldiers brought the authority of this proclamation and set people free from their slavery. And so th this proclamation, every, everywhere that they went, they would say, we have good news. You are already free, and we are here to enforce it. The proclamation also announced that all freed African-American slaves were allowed to join the ranks of the Union Army and Navy, which enabled them as liberated people to become liberators themselves. And by the end of the Civil War, almost 200,000 freed African-Americans had fought for the Union troops. And although the Emancipation Proclamation was issued on January 1st, 1863, there was a lag of two years before it was finally fully enforced across the whole of the United States. You see, the news of this proclamation was only able to travel as quickly as the Union forces could advance. And they would liberate people as they went. And, if, and Texas was the farthest state from the announcement. Of course it was Texas. <laughs> And the reality of this proclamation was delayed until finally in Galveston, Texas, on June 19, 1865, the last enslaved African Americans were finally given the good news that they were free. And so for two years, the abolition of slavery was America's law, but had not been yet realized in all of the states. There were people who had the possibility, the legal right of freedom, but had not yet received what had been promised. They were living in the already and the not yet. They were living in the tension. And it was those who were formerly enslaved that were the ones enabled to bring liberty that they had received. What a picture of what the church is called to be. We are liberators, or we are, liber we are the liberated made liberators. We are those who have tasted of the age to come, who are sent to carry this good news to the rest of the world and invite everyone to receive what we've already received. You see, Jesus decreed from the cross victory, full and final victory. He announced that it is finished. But in his sovereignty, he has chosen to rely on us to bring that victory to bear on all of those who are in darkness and without hope. In this contested space, the already and not yet, we are people who are living the future and bringing everyone along with us. So what is the gospel? What is this good news? It is the very good news that the kingdom of God is here and is coming. It is, pro it is the promise that the world that has been broken by human sin and all of the consequences of death and hell have been overcome by Jesus and that all of those who put their faith in him can experience liberation and victory over their sin. That is the gospel that we have come to believe in and are being also sent to proclaim to draw others out of their captivity. And why is this good news for us still today? It's good news that the power of our sin has been broken fully and finally and that we can be forgiven and made new in Christ. 
that without the forgiveness of sins, we have nothing. Nothing else matters if you're still dead in your sins. What good is societal transformation, the eradication of all evil, of all slavery, of all racism, of everything that we can think of, if we are still dead in our sins? But the gospel is more than just forgiveness of sins. It is the promise that all things are being made new in Christ's resurrection power. And this gospel, it propels us as the new humanity to step out into the rest of the world, into every sphere of human suffering and of human culture, and to make it right and new. Because of the increase of his government and of peace, there is no end. So if you have an angst that says that even though I am personally saved, the world is still not right, I have good news for you. You have not been called to just wait it out. You have been called to go into all of the world and to make it like Eden, to restore things back to the intended shalom that God designed it, but it flows from your forgiveness of sins and from the filling of the Holy Spirit, not as sort of a side extra. We have to have it all. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is making all things right. He is healing sick bodies that are in pain. He is restoring marriages and broken families. He is setting free those who are captive to sin and the demonic and to addiction. He is drawing those who are lonely into his family, the church. He is breaking off shame and condemnation and washing us clean. We are made new creations in Christ filled with the Holy Spirit, experiencing now and forevermore what he calls eternal life, life with God. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, because of his enthronement in the lowest and ugliest and most horrific place, sin and death have no claim on us. We are his forever. And that is good news. So while the gospel is more than forgiveness of sins, it is not less. It is the renewal of all things in Christ, beginning with our hearts, beginning with our persons, beginning with washing our sin clean for the sake of not just us, but to be a blessing for all nations. Amen?